You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. the last one of the academic year where we'll start to come to an end. Um, just for those of you who are coming to the hub for the first time, we do a number of things in here. We celebrate the excellence of the arts, humanities and the library. We uh, promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And obviously today is a great example and I'm so delighted to see some of our colleagues from, I was going to say the other end of college, but you know what I mean by that. It's great because some of the scientists are here and computer scientists. And then the third thing we do is public humanities. So trying to take the learnings of the arts and humanities to the widest possible audiences. And actually, uh, a lot of people will follow this, the podcast of this with great online audiences as well. So uh, Philip has been with us now, what, three weeks? Yes. Yeah. So he's uh, one of our visiting research fellows at the University of York. He has made himself part of the community. It's been an absolute joy to have him here. Um, and I'm just sorry that he's getting ready to leave because no sooner people come out of the family then but you're always going to ask people to help now Philip, no escape um, and uh, he was nominated by the School of Law so it's lovely that you're going to do the in conversation uh, uh, which is, is, is terrific because again for us what's critical about the hub is how basically all the energy comes from our constituent schools so without you we wouldn't exist uh, simple as that I have one favour to ask of everyone. I always leave my keys lying around here, and I've lost. Could, could you just have a look and see? Is anybody sitting on a huge bunch of keys? Sorry, Tim, are you all so comfortable? No? No? Alright, okay. Sorry, if anybody comes across a bunch of keys, they're, they're mine, and uh, we've just had an amazing coffee morning, and they'll be around here somewhere. Anyway, it's not to worry about. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, yes, over to you. Thank you very much, Jane. Uh, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Des Ryan from the School of Law. As Jane said, we're delighted to welcome Philip Morgan, Senior Lecturer from the University of York. Philip, could I ask you just to start off, please, by outlining briefly the research area in which you specialise and its relevance to today's talk? Yes, this one works as well. So, a brief apology for the lawyers here. I realise that there's both lawyers and non-lawyers. So, for, for the lawyers here, apologies for any oversimplifications. I'm a primarily tort lawyer. I'm interested in the law of civil wrongs. Issues of liability and compensation for when things go wrong. It's not a matter of criminal law. It's about the rights and duties that we have between one another that are not assumed by contract. And the consequences of harm and when those violent rights that we have between one another are violated. Yes, could you just say a little bit? Can you just, yeah, we can't hear you. I'll, I'll be more like that. That's, that's, that's great. I'll put it close. Yeah. Could you just say a little bit more about the, the role of tort law? Okay, yes. Well, tort is a mixed bag. There are many torts out there, and they all deal with discrete problems. So, for example, there's a tort of defamation for when you, for instance, publish material that lowers the reputation of an individual, and you publish that into people, to other people. 
There are torts, for instance, that deal with your bodily integrity and rights. So, for example, if I were to, to take your coat, there's a tort called conversion that protects your possessory rights. But for many people, tort, the primary image they have of tort is that of personal injury. Redressing um, the, uh, and compensating these harms. But tort goes substantially beyond that. And there are lots of nominate torts that deal with each of those, those individual harms. The tort of negligence is probably the, the widest known tort. That is when we owe duties of care to one another. And that's not just in the personal injury situation. So, for example, the, this building here was constructed by um, a host of professionals who, who maybe didn't meet the standards that they were expected to do. Well, the tort of negligence helps to deal with that as well. So tort is a very mixed bag. But what they all have in common is they are causes of action, nominate causes of action, that address harm or address the violation of rights that we owe to one another, or that we assume in relation to one another. Thanks, Bob. And just in terms of tort as a mechanism of, of private-based regulation, would you mind just locating for us, please, the position of tort within or relative to other legal uh, mechanisms? Okay, yes. So, there are different theories of tort law out there. I ascribe to a fairly regulatory model of tort. And this, this is quite popular in the United States. And I would accept that tort has a variety of roles, and this is just one of the roles. But one of the roles of tort is as a private regulatory method. It, it permits you to bring an action against another who has violated your rights or has caused harm to you. And in doing so, you have a method that you as an individual, without having to invoke a state regulatory body, can bring against that other actor. Now, your power to do that can shape the decision-making processes of actors. So there is what we call the deterrence theory of tort. And there's good evidence to suggest that tort does deter conduct, at least at the organisational level. Organisations take into account their potential exposure to liability in making decisions, and, and, and tort helps to shape that. So, for example, if we're bringing it into um, the AI or AI realm, the designers will take into account potential exposure to liability in uh, setting safety parameters or the scope of what the product can do. And so then, just on that note, could you just outline for us, please, the different types of liability in tort that can arise? So the different types of liability in, 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 in what sense? In terms of fault-based liability and strict liability. Okay, yes. Well, I think the, the best way to, to do this would be to use an example. And that would be the example of um, myself from the University of York. I'm an employee of the University of York. Let's say during this um, following focus interview, one of you asked me a really difficult question that I simply can't answer. And I'm so angry about it that I violently assault you with this microphone. Now, I have committed a tort against you, the tort of battery. That is an intentional tort. You can bring a claim against me personally. But in many situations, the person who commits the tort is not going to have sufficient assets to be able to, to pay for that wrong. 
So the, your other most obvious defendant here is the University of York. Well, there are different ways of getting to the University of York. Firstly, a fault-based approach. You would say that the University of York owed you a duty of care to select proper staff members and um, to, to monitor their behaviour and to, to retrain them as, a, as a appropriate. So, for example, if the University of York knew that I was a violent thug with many convictions for violence and that, any, that I would violently respond to any question that I couldn't answer, they would be at fault in employing me and putting me in this situation, and they would be at fault vis-a-vis -vis you, and you could bring a claim against them in the tort of negligence. Alternatively, there are methods of strict liability. So here we've got a system called vicarious liability, where the University of York might not be at fault in selecting me. They might not know I'm a violent thug. I might have successfully concealed my propensity for doing this, and there's nothing they could have done to discover this. So they're not at fault. In... But the system of vicarious liability allows you to say to the university, you are strictly liable for the acts of your employee, Philip Morgan, which are closely connected to his employment. He's employed to um, attend talks such as this and to give presentations, and therefore his violence is directly connected with that activity, and therefore you are strictly liable for that. So that, that's a demonstration between um, an example of fault-based liability and strict liability. But there are other systems of strict liability as well. Thanks, Bertrand. Just on that example you gave of potential vicarious liability, what would some of the justifications be for its imposition? So with vicarious liability, there are quite a range of contradictory arguments for why we should impose liability on employers for the acts of their employees. One of the most uh, widespread arguments, at least uh, in the last 20 years, has been one of enterprise liability. And the argument can essentially be summarised in a simple way of you take the benefits, you take the burdens. If you're profiting from this activity, it doesn't necessarily mean financial profit, this will also operate, for example, in a religious context. If you take the uh, positive externalities of this individual's act, you should, take, you should pay for the negative externalities. Those negative externalities should be absorbed within your enterprise and not... Um, placed on the innocent victim themselves. So that's one of the arguments. Another argument is one of loss spreading, and it's intimately connected with enterprise liability. And it says you as an organisation or employer can better spread the loss sustained by the individual victim amongst society, whether it's through insurance, whether it's on increasing the cost of the product that you are selling, and it would, it would even apply for, for example, uh, non-commercial entities as well. You could spread it amongst your donors or by withdrawing services. There are also moral arguments based on, well, you control the individual um, who committed the, the, the act that was taught. Um, and the moral notion is, is, is that you should pay it. There are arguments based on deep pockets that organisations are best able to, to pay for, for such harms. And there are other deterrence-based arguments that organisations, unlike individuals, are in a, in a position best able to put systems and practices into position to prevent harms from arising. But there are other justifications as well, but those are the primary ones that have been raised by the courts. The problem is a lot of these are contradictory, and the, the courts themselves uh, 
Generally, just throw all this together to justify their outcome. Thanks for that. When vicarious liability is imposed, for example, in the instance you gave of the deliberate wrongdoing by the employee, is the law saying there that in fact that wrongdoing is being attributed to the defendant, or is it simply saying that the defendant will have to pay what they themselves blameless? Right. Well, it's it's, strict, it's a strict liability system. And it's acknowledging that the defendant, the employer in that situation, is, is wholly blameless. There was an early strand of literature talking about fault within the employment itself, but, that, but that's been rejected. Now, there are two models you can adopt for this. I commit a wrong. I am an employee. If you attribute my acts to my employer, we call that the master's tort theory. My actual acts become that of my employer. Then the employer themselves has committed the wrong. And the courts across the common law world have, have widely rejected that as a, as a poor fiction. Indeed, it causes problems within insurance law if you do that. The alternative model is you say, I, Philip Morgan, have committed a tort. We attribute the liability for that tort to the employer. And, and that's the model that's generally adopted amongst the common law. The consequence of that is if I have a personal defence that only applies to me and wouldn't apply to my employer, that my employer wouldn't be liable in that situation. But most of these um, historic defences are very much defences prior to 1950 that have been abolished. There are very few of them that exist. So that distinction between master's tort and servant's tort so it, it is not normally a problem, but it becomes a significant problem when we start to replace employees with AI technologies. Excellent. And just before we come to that, uh, how these very well-established principles may now be either applied or adapted to AI. Could I ask you just to give us a brief uh, account of some of the ways recently in which the courts have expanded vicarious liability? Right, well, this is a phenomenon that's occurred across the common law world. It started initially with hints within the United States case law. It was picked up very much by Canada that's been the driving force behind this. Um, it's then been picked up by the courts within the United Kingdom, which have rapidly expanded what vicarious liability is. Courts in uh, Australia and also Ireland have also picked up on this expansion, being a little bit more wary. Um, I've always made my name by being a critic of United Kingdom law here. So. But what's been happening, at least uh, within the Canadian and English jurisprudence, partly accepted within Ireland and only partly accepted within Australia, is an expansion of both who you can be vicariously liable for and which of their acts you can be vicariously liable for. 25 years ago, if I was a teacher and I sexually abused one of my pupils, the courts would say that is so far removed from what a teacher is meant to be doing that their employer should not be liable for that act. And driven by the sexual abuse litigation, which is concerned with an institutional setting, both residential care, uh, education, and in a religious context, you've had an expansion of what type of act an employer, what type of tort an employer can be vicariously liable for. And it's now fairly well established that intentional wrongs and criminal acts are sufficiently closely connected with employment for the employer to be vicariously liable, even if the connection is fairly tenuous. 
So to take one example, a decision of the United Kingdom Supreme Court, a Somali man comes into a petrol station and asks the, the assistant at the petrol station whether they would print something from a USB stick, that he's subjected to violent racial abuse and uh, a kicking by um, the petrol station attendant who has a hatred of Somali men. The employer Morrison's was held vicariously liable for his acts. So that's quite an extreme stretch from what a petrol station attendant is employed to do. So the type of acts that trigger vicarious liability have really stretched. At the same time, who you can be vicariously liable for has again expanded significantly. It started off being very much one of employer and employee, with a couple of additional historic pockets. Now we have tests called akin to employment. We're looking, for example, at a priest and bishop. We're looking at volunteer organisation and volunteer. You can see the scoutmasters coming in here. We're starting to see a broader range of individuals who could trigger vicarious liability for someone who could be termed their principal. So there's been an expansion at both stages. It's almost in an attempt um, to get to that deeper pocket. And we're now actually starting to see vicarious liability for independent contractors which until fairly recently was, no, no, they're a separate enterprise. They're nothing to do with you, the employer. They, they create their own risks, they have their own insurance, they take their own profit. But now we're starting to see case law saying, actually you are liable for some categories of independent contractor that are core to your business. Thanks, Bill. So it'd be fair then to summarise that as of 2019, we've moved to a situation in which there's been very rapid and dramatic expansion of the, the two stages that you've outlined of vicarious liability. So uh, for what an employer can be liable and for whom the employer can be liable. Can I ask you, what then is the significance of a situation where a machine replaces a human uh, in the context of the performance of certain tasks? And in particular, how will that phenomenon impact upon these principles that you've been explaining? Right. Well, I have to distinguish machine first, because machines have been replacing humans <coughs> in the corner for centuries. Uh, my washing machine replaces a human carrying out that task. What I'm talking about machines here is I'm talking about machines that are firstly autonomous, and secondly have machine learning. And what we are seeing here is the growth of what could be described as machines that can operate in an unsupervised context, that can take on some of the features that an employee, a, a human employee would have. The more, when we essentially <coughs> replace a human with a machine, we have a problem. The law treats machines as property not as an actor that's capable of committing a wrong. Vicarious liability is parasitic on a human wrong. A human has to commit a tort. That allows us to get to their employing enterprise. If we replace the human with a machine, there is no tort committed by the machine, even if the machine commits the same harm against a human victim. The machine cannot commit a tort. Therefore, there is no wrong of the machine to, to parasitically link vicarious liability to the employer. 
Okay, right, well, how do we get around this? Well, there are other potentials. Firstly, we talked about the fault-based system, and I talked about myself being a, an employee of the University of York. The University of York could be at fault in employing me, but there are many situations where the employer will not be at fault where the employee commits a wrong. We have an abuse, a sexually abusive teacher who no one was aware that they had a paedophilic um, propensities. There was no hint of this, and there's nothing that the area employer could have done to have spotted this. It's not as if there had been complaints that they had ignored. In that situation, the employer would not be at fault. But you could still get to them through vicarious liability. By eliminating the vicarious liability route against the employer, when we replace the employee with a machine, we're actually diminishing victim rights. The victim can no longer bring a claim on a strict liability basis against the employer for the harm that's been committed to them. Even if the harm that they sustain is exactly the same, and even if it was sustained in a very similar way. And Philip, may I ask, what about existing regimes within tort law, for example, liability for animals? Would there be um, guidance to be gained from that existing area of tort law that could apply in relation to AI? Right, well, there's a couple of things to, to respond here. Firstly, with an employee who commits a wrong, you can sue the employee. You obviously can't sue a machine. It's not a legal person. That, that's a debate in its own right. But you can't also sue their parents. With a machine, you can, you can sue the producer, the manufacturer, or designer. And there are a variety of claims that you can, you can bring. But this is where machine learning causes problems. Because we're trying to find the fault of the manufacturer. Now, with machine learning, the, the machine may continue to develop after it's left the hands of the designer. It might be difficult to attribute fault to the designer where a machine learns something, maybe faulty training data is fed to it, maybe it learns from communicating with another system or with a third-party system. It may be very difficult to identify <coughs> the fault or the problem that caused the the problematic output. So a fault-based claim against the manufacturer or designer or programmer could be problematic. There are also strict liability claims. There's a European products regime that applies to uh, designers, manufacturers, producers, importers. But it's subject to a state-of-the-art defense. And also, it's very much looking at the time the product left the hands of that developer. But with machine learning, we have potential for continuous development. We may have the problem of, within um, tort law, the harm ha that is caused has to be caused by the actual fault of the developer or designer. Proving that causation is problematic when we're dealing with black boxes. That's the, pro uh, the problem with the designer-based systems. Animals are also another analogy that's often raised. An animal is autonomous. An animal also learns. So it's a very obvious analogy. There's two problems with this. Firstly, the range of harms and the range of activities that an animal may carry out is much more limited than an AI system. I'm not going to take financial or medical advice from my dog. Um, the potential harms that, could, that an AI system could, sustain, uh, could generate for a human is substantially broader than an animal. If we look at animal liability, it comes in two forms. One for dangerous animals, and one for domestic animals. 
For dangerous animals, we have strict liability for all the harm that they sustain on an individual. For ordinary domestic animals, we're looking at harm which arises from that activity or propensity of that animal which is different from animals of that class. Okay, well if we say we now model machine liability for the owner or operator of that machine, of that system, on animal liability, we have a problem. And one of that is due to, it's due to the deterrent function of toy. What I'm arguing here is what I call tech neutrality. I'm saying the law of tort has a role to encourage or discourage the adoption of technology where that technology is more or less safe than if a human carried out that function. Where tort law does that, it's acting properly. It's deterring negative behavior. It's encouraging positive behavior. But where the risks are exactly the same, tort should be tech neutral. It should neither encourage nor discourage the adoption of technology, where the risks that that technology imposes are exactly the same as a human carrying out that. Now, if we adopt the liability that applies for animals, we remove that tech neutrality. We only the same uh, AI systems are so dangerous, they're like a dangerous animal. In that situation, we've generated uh, a, a great disincentive to use AI technology. That makes the liability for an AI system is much more expansive than for a human. If we say, well, actually, this technology is, is going to be ubiquitous, it's, it's not a dangerous animal at all, it's not like keeping a pet lion, it's more like your Labrador. Well, in that case, we've produced a system where the liability is less extensive than an employee, and we create an incentive, and I would argue a perverse incentive, to adopt the technology in the place of an employee even where the risks, even in the situation where the risks are exactly the same. Thank you, Philip. You mentioned earlier the potential precarious liability for independent contractors, which is a trend we're seeing at present in the law of tort. In light of your observations just now, is there a concern that um, potential defendants using uh, AI will have recourse to it to try to avoid liability which would otherwise flow to them for the wrongdoing of humans? And if so, where do you see, or how do you see the law responding to that? Well, one of the arguments behind independent contractor liability that seems to be evolving is the disaggregation of corporate structures and the use of independent contractors in place of employees. And one of the advantages to that is you can hive off risk. If you have a similar idea that there won't be vicarious liability for AI systems. You can hive off risk by using them. And that seems to be the argument that's behind, or at least the motivation behind the expansion of independent contractor vicarious liability, but it's very much within its infancy. Now, one of the problem, what I'm arguing for here is the adoption of a form of vicarious liability, the form of strict liability for employers, in inverted comma, of AI technologies. Well, one of the problems is who's an employer? Or is the technology more in the nature of an independent contractor? That itself, there's much we can learn from the test between employee status and independent contractor status in, in making that that call. Thank you. I know we've just a few minutes left before we open up for a discussion, and it's perhaps just useful, I think, to, uh, to note that in uh, some of the big uh, decisions we've mentioned in which we've seen these uh, 
first come to have not yet come to a stop. Uh, after which the Supreme Court of Ireland, relying on Phillips' work, uh, responded by saying that vicarious liability is not on the move. If it moves, it must be by judges who apply reasoned justification to its development. Perhaps I could ask you, just in concluding, before we open up the discussion, to ask, in your view, what is the justification for potentially expanding vicarious liability into this sphere? Right, well, my primary justification would be tech neutrality. And that is the idea that victim rights should not depend or and should not vary whether or not the, the harm that they sustain is committed through the agency of an individual or the agency of a machine. And that the law of tort should not have a perverse incentive to either adopt or reject technology where the, the risks on that technology pose are exactly the same to individuals. And that, to the extent that we can properly justify uh, vicarious liability, and I have written on the, the theory of, uh, and justifications of vicarious liability, to the extent that vicarious liability is justified, those justifications apply equally where I have an AI system or an employee carrying out that function for me. And those justifications do not vary. The, whether it's the enterprise lo uh, and, and loss spreading arguments. Control, we've got question marks over that. Although I'm very much an advocate of control, I realize that uh, a lot of courts have not accepted those arguments. But the justifications for vicarious liability apply equally for AI technologies. So my case here is essentially one of tech neutrality. And also, if vicarious liability is a proper doctrine, and I would argue it very much is, it should not be killed through the back door. Yes, many, we, we, should, we shouldn't overwrite the potential expansion of AI technologies. There will always be humans in the equation. In, but certain roles will be increasingly carried out by non-human technology. Within driverless cars, we've started to see some jurisdictions introducing ad hoc legislative solutions that only apply to driverless vehicles. But we need to start thinking bigger picture. We need to start thinking of AI technologies out of the side of the vehicular context. And we need to start thinking very carefully about victim rights and what will happen to victim rights if our legal structures do not replicate the potential liability for humans if we replace humans in this liability matrix. Thank you very much for that. I'll have to look for a vote.